0: Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health as your soul prospers. We are, of course, talking about emotionally healthy. And just by way of review, the first week we talked about the happiness heresy. The idea that somehow when Jesus came, the promise to us was not that he was going to make us happy. The promise was simply that he would be with us to the very end of the age. And we live in this thing called life, and occasionally we are unhappy. And so we talked a little bit about that the first week. The second week, we looked at the challenges to developing a healthy soul, and that there are certain promises or certain problems, rather, and challenges that we have, and that even though that we may have the hope of glory and the hope of eternity in our hearts, that does not necessarily equate to our emotional health right now, today in the world in which we live. And so we broke down during that message some of the challenges to a healthy soul. And Then last week, looked at the poison of productivity, about how many times we find ourselves doing for God instead of doing with God, and that how we feel better about ourselves when we produce, when we achieve. And tonight I want to continue on becoming your authentic person. You know, the reality is there's a, quite a move, movement. I mean, you can almost pick up any kind of publication, both in and out of the church now. And it's a lot of there about self-authentication. Be all you can be. Be the best person that you can be. I mean, it's, it's everywhere, both in and out of the church. But the real key, I believe, is learning to live our life through him. Now, most of the time when we think about this as a believer, then our context or whether the way that we would phrase that would be, it's his life being lived through you. But I want to turn that around slightly tonight because I believe the inverse of that is true as well. And what do I mean by that? Now, we, we have to not only have Christ in us, the hope of glory, got that, operating, it operates, he operates through our lives, but we have to live our lives through him as well. And this is not just a play on words, but there is a difference, and living our life through him means that we are becoming what he has uniquely designed us to be. How many of you know that we are indeed channels and conduits for the Holy Spirit? Amen? I mean, we want to be the clearest, cleanest, purest channel for God to move through us as we possibly can. But there's, there's, there's a part of this, though, that it's not just God moving through us. It's us living through him. It's it's us being changed and conformed and coming into that which he's designed for us as we both understand both the design and allow the spirit to empower that design. Stay with me and I'll unpack this. But there's a prerequisite to this entire process. Because you can't know how special you are until you first know how special he is. That's where it has to begin. And ladies and gentlemen, let me just reaffirm for you is that the cross is where that transaction occurs. We never get too sophisticated for being reminded that this... It wasn't just, a, it wasn't just a, 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 a manger in Bethlehem, but it is at that cross where it all comes together. Our helplessness and yet our preciousness in tandem. And in the context that he would give himself for us. And we need a fresh revelation of that cross every day. Every day. Every day. And it's why all of the old covenant liturgy that Jesus could have chosen to bring forward the Eucharist, the table, communion. It was the one remembrance that combined elements of the old covenant, but yet something completely new at the same time. The understanding that there could be no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. It's a very old covenant concept. And yet this new covenant, whereby which it's won and done, if you wish. Aren't you glad that you didn't have to drag an animal in here tonight? And I'm very happy as a minister, and as a priest, I didn't have to murder any animals in here tonight. And Pastor Brett's very happy we did not mess up his floor or his stage doing blood sacrifices in here tonight. But that does not mean that blood is not still required. To cover sin. And this is what that table reminds us of. And it's not just something that we do because it's the first Sunday. But it it brings us back to that place where we realize who this Jesus really is. And a revelation of self without the prerequisite revelation of Christ simply leads us to a place of self-actualization. Which often can just get us lost in narcissism and entitlement. The I am, therefore, I deserve. And we get elements of that even in the church. Well, I'm a blood-bought child of the king. Yeah, you are. There's nothing, there's, there's nothing incorrect theologically about that statement. But it's the attitude and the motivation whereby which you make that statement, that's what separates us coming into inheritance and separating us from inheritance. Well, I am. Therefore, all this stuff should be mine. And you can, you can dial up all that preaching that you want to very, very easily. And we like hearing it. And there is, there is truth in it. But I just got to tell you this. I am, therefore I deserve... I can tell you that that didn't go far in my household. I mean, when my children would attempt that foolishness, that somehow that they were entitled to certain things, it's all of a sudden that, that whole attitude of entitlement closed my wallet up real fast. I don't know how to tell you, but all of a sudden that I may have, what, 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 what may have been poised for blessing that I, that I am, therefore I deserve, all of a sudden it's just like, well, that just shut it off right there. It's not an attitude that we're quick to bless and I don't believe it's an attitude that heaven is quick to bless. C.S. Lewis makes this statement. The more we let God take us over, the more truly ourselves we become. He invented all the different people that you and I were intended to be. Your authenticity can only emerge and evolve as Christ himself validates and authenticates you. You see, so many times we're looking for this authentication to come from Something external, maybe, maybe horizontal relationships, a husband, a wife, an employer, some type of accolade or award that we can get in this life. That somehow we can be defined this way. But I want to say that your real divine design begins with your knowledge of Jesus Christ. Augustine. Wrote in Confessions in A.D. 400, How can you draw close to God when you're far from your own self? And he prayed this prayer, Grant, Lord, that I may know myself that I might know thee. Interesting. Meister Eckhart, a Dominican writer writer from the 13th century, wrote this, No one can know God who does not first know himself. St. Teresa of Avila wrote in The Way of Perfection, almost all problems in the spiritual life stem from a lack of self-knowledge. John Calvin, 1530, wrote in his opening of his Institutes of the Christian Religion, Our wisdom consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. But as these are connected together by many ties, it's not easy to determine which of the two precedes and gives birth to the other. Interesting. What are all these ancients saying here? Is that for us to fully know ourselves, we have to what? Know God. But they're also saying something else that for us to fully know God the way God intends, we have to know ourselves a little bit. Interesting. Interesting. How many of you know are pretty clueless? How many of you are pretty clueless about yourself? And if you don't think you are, get married. Let me just tell you. (laughs) That was my wife laughing the loudest on the front row, by the way. But many of you really might think that you are some great man or woman of God until you move in and start playing house together. Until all of a sudden you don't realize, you think you're the most giving, loving, patient, tolerant human in the world. Until you get home after the honeymoon. And if that's not enough to do it for you, start having some childrens. Is that what little bit that you thought you were or were not? Let me just tell you, you started having some children and they start running around and doing what children do, all of a sudden, that last nerve gets discovered in your life, and you begin to realize, I'm not even sure I'm saved. Jesus, help me or kill me, one or the other. You know what I'm talking about. Don't look at me like that. But the idea that it's not until we really can understand who we are, can I submit to you that, that the preciousness and the cost of what we've been saved from is diminished. Until I really know what I'm capable of. Until I really know what's on the inside of me. Until I really have understood the hopes and the dreams and the thoughts and the emotions and everything that constitutes who I am. It's not until I can... Begin to embrace some of those things and reject, embrace the good ones and reject the wrong ones, that I really can fully then begin to understand who this God really is. Hmm. Erwin McManus wrote a great book called The Artist and Soul. And he writes: all art is an expression and extension of ourselves. There may be no virtue more admired by those who understand themselves as artists than authenticity. And art finds its deepest value when it's the authentic expression of a deep human experience. Art becomes profound when it exposes us, it explains us, or inspires us. And the only art we can create is that which authentically reflects who we are. Our soul is the material for all we create. I love that. And being authentic, let me hasten to say, is not a blank check for unbridled self-expression, independence, rebellion. It's not what we're talking about here. But our authenticity, the way God intends it, it's a celebration of God's creativity. That's truly what discovering our authentic self is. It is a celebration of God's creativity. God looked around at what he made. What did he say? It's good. What did he say after he made man? It's very good. God was pleased he was pleased with what he did god did man and we we we've heard these horrible expressions that you know god don't make no junk you know what i mean i just come on really let's 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 not diminish god to that but the fact that god's crowning achievement was in mankind and god made some pretty cool stuff in the cosmos and on this planet And yet, it was mankind that was God's crowning. Feelings as well help to define us. But are our feelings, are they friends or foe? And one of the problems or one of the challenges that we looked at a couple of weeks ago was denying our feelings. Well, I shouldn't feel that way. Well, maybe you shouldn't, but you do. Now what are you going to do with it? It's a little bit like an action. An action. Well, I shouldn't have done that. Yeah, you did, but now what are you going to do? Now you've got something that you've been convicted of that you can now repent of. Now you've got something now that you know that you can go and you can make amends. You can fix. But denying our feelings, eventually we will lose who we are. Peter Skizzero, when we deny our pain, losses, and feelings year after year, we become less and less human. We transform slowly into empty shells with smiley faces painted on them. And sad to say, that's the fruit of much of our discipleship in our churches. But when I began to allow myself to feel a wider range of emotions, including sadness, depression, fear, and anger, a revolution in my spirituality was unleashed. I realized that a failure to appreciate the biblical place of feelings within our larger Christian lives has done extensive damage, keeping free people in Christ in slavery. Not interesting. Now we've touched on this in previous sessions. But the emotions of God and the emotions of man, they're they're similar, but they're different. We know that God got angry. God loves. We can frustrate the Holy Spirit. All kinds of emotions of God that are recorded in Scripture. And yet the difference in God's emotions and our emotions is one simply of motivation. God does nothing out of emotions, we do many times. It becomes, if you wish, the thing that motivates a behavior. God is not motivated by emotions. God has emotions, but God is motivated by a pre purpose plan that He works out in accordance with His timing and His will. Are you with me? So, yes, God has emotions. You and I have emotions. And our emotions help to provide both illumination and revelation of who God is and who we are. I've said before that there's two parts of loving God. You've got to love God, but you've got to hate sin. Oh, I just love God. But do you hate sin? I love God. Do you hate the devil? Do you hate what the enemy is doing to the lives of men and women around you? It's not enough just to love God. You got to love what God loves, but you gotta hate what God hates. Oh, who oh, hate. I'm scared of that. God's not afraid to hate. But you see, by and, and so we ask a question: why, why do certain things affect me? Have you ever found yourself looking at something? All of a sudden, emotions begin to well, where's that coming from? Because what affects me might not affect Pastor Paul, and yet what profoundly affects Pastor Paul might not affect me at all. Why? Number one, we're touching into not only our history, maybe our pain that goes with that history, but we're touching into some unique divine wiring that we respond differently to different things. It's what makes us unique. But by ignoring the emotions, both good and bad, we begin to learn to ignore ourselves. The intent was never that we disappear. That's not what God intended. And even at the time, and if we, if we continue to ignore our emotions, not only will we ignore ourselves, but ultimately we will ignore God as well. Dan Allender wrote a book entitled The Cry of the Soul. He said, ignoring our emotions is turning our back on reality. Listening to our emotions ushers us into reality. And reality is where we meet God. Emotions are the language of the soul. And they are the cry that give the heart a voice. How many of you know that God speaks to us through our emotions? In our school of prophecy, I teach that there are a number of ways that God speaks. Job 33, God speaks a number of different ways. He speaks to us verbally. He speaks to us visually through visions and dreams. But let me also say that God speaks to us viscerally. That word viscerous from an old Latin term that means that which is on the inside, which is unseen. And many times, God will speak to us in a place that many times we don't even have language for yet. God will touch us in the realm of our emotions. And maybe we don't have a chapter and verse to go with it. Maybe we don't even have language to go with it. But we know that God is speaking to us. We are experiencing God in a deep place. The Bible speaks of deep, calling unto deep. Ignatius, first century writer, bishop, and martyr, he looked at the differences between what he called consolations, defined, he defined as those interior movements and feelings that bring life, joy, peace, and the fruit of the Spirit, and desolations, those emotions that bring us death, inner turmoil, disquiet, and turbulence. And it was this inner awareness of what we are feeling in our insides that Ignatius echoed the Apostle John who said, Don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. There's so many times we use this passage as it involves whether or not it's an angelic spirit from God or a demonic spirit from the devil. But by extension here, this emotion that I'm experiencing right now, where is that coming from? Where is that emanating from? And sometimes they're our own fleshly desires that could be the enemy. Other times God's prodding us to a better choice. And God intends that we mature in learning to recognize how he speaks and guides us through our feelings. Now I'm speaking hopefully to the mature. We understand that we don't just go out and just follow God on the basis of our feelings. We understand that. We have the standard of this written word. We have the Holy Spirit that speaks clearly to us. But I think for us to continue to ignore this entire realm of how God is leading us through our motions. Hasn't helped us many times. And God has made us unique. From the very beginning God made them male and female. He made different plants. He made different animals. There's a distinction and I believe one of the major attacks of the devil is to lose that distinctiveness. In today's culture that we find ourselves in the midst of where even things as, that used to be as biologically simple as gender have been replaced with words like fluidity. Something like 50 different sexual orientations now. I don't, don't ask me. Can't even begin to understand it. But what used to be very simple based on divine design has now gotten so confused based on the realm of the emotions and yes, sin. And God celebrates that distinction. And our design, our authenticity is not a bad thing with the right prerequisites in place and the right priorities. But let me say this, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to have to have courage to live the life that God intends for us to live. You know, it'd be easy if everybody would just kind of just just be who God called you to be. But How many of you know that there are a lot of forces, not only in the culture of the world, but even in the culture of the church, maybe in the culture of your biological family, maybe the culture of your workplace, maybe the, maybe the culture of your ethnicity, that try to tell you this is what you've got to be. This is how you have to think. This is how you have to feel. And so we're constantly having to navigate all of these forces that are trying to put their hands on us, so to speak, and to mold and conform us to something that may or may not be at all that which God intended for us to be. Hmm. And it's going to take the catalyst of courage to both invite and ignite the Spirit's power and God's faith to arise in us, to realize the fullness of whom He's designed us to be. So it begs the question then, how do we acquire that courage? I believe that there are a number of steps to that. But at the very beginning is to accept the distinctions and embrace the differences. An acceptance rather than a rejection of God's design. And to do that, you've got to have some information and revelation about yourself. We've talked about that. You know, the Apostle Paul knew not only what he was called to do. He understood his mission. He understood that God had given him a very very unique thing to do was that this gospel was now not just for the Jew but it was also for the Gentile talk about a specific mission he had one but could I submit to you that Paul also knew who he was Romans 1:1 1, 1, right out of the box Paul a servant of Jesus Christ here's a definition right here a servant Called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. I mean, this is right out of the box. Romans, arguably the greatest theological tone that we have, maybe in the, all of Scripture. But Paul, from the very beginning, he is establishing before he tells us what he knows, he's telling us, this is who I am. Interesting. 1 Corinthians 15, he goes on to describe who he is. I'm the least of all the apostles. 1 Corinthians 15, 7 through 10. Don't even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, here we are again. I am what I what? What I am. Here he is. He's not denying the pain of what he did. He's not trying to rewrite history, gloss over it. Oh, no, that was somebody else. I mean, he's owning it. This is what I was. And you see, ladies and gentlemen, it's not many times until we can own what we were that we can now fully own what we are. Or we can fully own what we're becoming. Where is the testimony otherwise? I was, but now I am. I am, but yet I will be. Man, this is the stuff that testimonies are made from right here. Wow. You remember my former way of life, he said. Galatians 1. How intensely I persecuted the church of God, tried to destroy it, advancing in Judaism beyond my years. I mean, once again, he's reading out his CV. You remember who I was, but I know who I am now. Paul, a servant, an apostle. Interesting. And boy, talk about a man with no country. Talk about a man with no tribe. I mean, can you imagine the challenge that he had for years? Yeah, but you're the same. I mean, when the Holy Spirit came to Ananias and said, I want you to go and I want you to to, to take a message to this man, Saul. He says, uh, you must have got the wrong guy. I know this guy. He is the, no, he's the one. You go to him. I'm going to show him some things, but mostly I'm going to show him how much he's got to suffer for me. Interesting. But Paul knew. And the distinctions are not defects. Listen to me. Do you realize the richness of Paul's understanding of grace would have been impossible without that which God delivered him from? You want to hear somebody preach with passion? Listen to somebody that's been set free from something. Listen to somebody that knows what they were. Not just some theological abstract out there. But somebody that can say, "This this is where I was headed and this is where I'm headed now. And the richness that we have of Paul's understanding of mercy and grace, it was only possible with all of this other stuff that he brought to the table. David, little shepherd boy, out there with the sheep. Too weird to even be at the table with the rest of his family? Or the greatest king of Israel that Israel would ever know? The lineage of Jesus himself would come out of David's loins. Hmm. And the culture tells us, even at times, church culture, that being different is something not to be desired. And yet again, most everything in and out of God, or in and for God, rather, will require faith, which is his part. And it will require courage, our part, to realize and actualize. But to do that, we've got to recognize and defeat something. And I'll have to close with this. And that's the fear of man. Let me leave you with this question. Are you willing to live a life that you know in advance would disappoint other people? Are you willing to live a life that you know would disappoint others? You know, Jesus disappointed a lot of people. As a matter of fact, most of them. It's just a the reality. Reality. The sick folk that heard that he healed the sick that didn't get healed. Folk that buried loved ones that he didn't raise from the dead. His own disciples that never really got him. His family. Imagine Jesus. Who are my brothers? Who is my mother? How offensive a statement could that possibly be? Cousin John. Jesus not even coming to Visit him while imprisoned. The same John that preached this coming of the Messiah. Jesus didn't even show up to visit him. John died disillusioned. Disappointed in Jesus. You see, Jesus didn't live a life looking at how he could make everybody happy about him. He didn't live a life trying to figure out how to please everybody. He came in the form of a servant, yes. But the same way that Jesus, he came to serve all but to please one. Could I submit to you that one of the real secrets to unlock the courage to be who we are is when we stop trying to please everybody we come in contact with. We serve them, we love them, yes. But we're called to please just Jesus lived his life doing only what he saw the Father doing. What motivated Jesus? It wasn't those 12 disciples. It wasn't just the maddening crowds that wanted what he had and what he needed. He lived to please the Father. And all the rejection, all of the disappointment that you know he could feel, he was God. Touch me, heal me, I need this. If you and I are going to have the courage to live the power of the authentic life that God has mapped out for you and me, we've got to live it apart from the fear of man. It's the only way it will work. And I have to stop because I'm out of time. But I will finish this next week, I promise. Augustine prayed, Grant. Lord, that I might know myself, that I may know thee. Let's pray that tonight. Lord, we thank you that you have made yourself known to us. But God, you you kind of peek out and kind of eke out. God, glimpses of who you really are. Because in the confines of flesh and our own limited cognition, God, if we saw it all at once, we would die. It's, not only, it's, 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 it's only as we take on resurrection bodies and different eyes, different understanding, that we'll even be able to see you, glory. But God, I pray tonight that we would know ourselves, that we can know you. God, so many of us have, we've bought in to a lie that somehow there's something inherently wrong with me. These thoughts, these feelings, this personality type that I have, the way, the way I do and, the, and, and, and how fast I do it or how slow I do it or whatever it might be, somewhere we've imbibed a lie that something's wrong with us rather than celebrating the uniqueness of how you've crafted each one of us. Lord, we reject the lie tonight in order to receive the truth that we are fearfully, come on saints, and wonderfully made. God, let the revelation of the wonder part be imprinted upon us and change us. In Jesus' name, amen. Bless you, church.